glucagon is a hormone of the fasted state. And, and I like to talk about it because in a way, it's such a wonderful opposite to insulin that essentially whatever insulin wants to do, glucagon wants to oppose it. Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Dr. Ben Bickman. Okay, you all loved this episode the last time we did this one last year with him. It has been the highest performing episode of the Resetter Podcast on our YouTube channel and for a good reason. We are going to go down the path of insulin resistance. But here's, here's the really cool part about Dr. Ben Bickman. For starters, he's so great at giving us the science in a very chunked down way. So if you are confused on things around insulin resistance, like how can you be in ketosis with your ketones going up, but your blood sugar is going up at the same time? And another really popular question we get is why does my blood glucose change with my hormones? Is that bad? Or do I need to add more muscle to my body to become more insulin sensitive? These are the questions so many of you have asked us. So we brought Ben back so that he could not only answer them, but we can go into a little deeper discussion on insulin resistance, specifically to make it very applicable for you. So I absolutely loved doing this interview. I think you all are gonna find great insight in it. You're gonna, those of you that are fasting and have been fasting with me, oh my gosh, he has some really cool things in here about why glucose goes up for a longer period of time after you have been fasting. So many mysteries of the fasting world will be resolved in this episode. And if you are not familiar with Dr. Ben Bickman, he, I love this, this is off his Instagram. He is a metabolic scientist. He is a professor. He's a father. You will hear that in here. We talked about children and insulin resistance, and he is a husband. He is the author of Why We Get Sick, and he is such a lovely heart-based man that is changing the world through his teachings on insulin resistance, and I am so excited to share this with you. So if you love it as much as I love doing it, please send it out. And you, hopefully you'll hear in this or in the previous one, he has a great new shake uh, that is perfect for the ketogenic style eating. So we will leave a link for that as well. If you want to head on over to his webpage and see some of the great products that he's got to help us all stay insulin sensitive. Enjoy. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. 
So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled. And let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. So uh, I'm, I'm really, again, I just want to thank you for coming back. Um, yeah, we, yeah. We, I feel like I've talked about insulin resistance from every angle I possibly can. And I also feel like the world is waking up and they're starting to see that insulin resistance is not just an individual problem, but this is a world problem. Would you, yeah, yeah. you agree with that? Oh, oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, I, in fact, let's make sure we bring that up. Um, I've given talks on insulin resistance literally around the world for good reason, uh, because as much as we, no one loves to rag on the U.S. as much as Americans do. Oh. Um, and, and that doesn't go, I mean, that even includes things like insulin resistance, where we think we're the worst in the world, and we are not. Uh, I'm not even sure we're in the top 10 when it comes to countries with the worst insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Virtually every country in the Middle East is higher than us. Mexico's higher than us. Some countries in Southeast Asia. So yes, this is absolutely a global phenomenon, unfortunately. Yeah, interesting. That's It's so interesting to hear you say that Americans... Um, we are, we bash America that oh more than any other surprises me other country does. And you know, I've, I've lived around the world. I I'm not, I'm originally from Canada, born and raised. So I, I'm able to look at this country with somewhat of a foreigner's eyes and, and appreciate it. Like only foreigners can, uh, to be perfectly frank, yeah. uh, Americans love to hate their own country, which is kind of remarkable to me. And I'm an American and now, yeah. and I love it. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. I do feel like when it comes to the food industry and what we've done to our health, that that is one of the biggest things we like to hate on uh, ourselves for. Yeah. Well, and, and rightly so, of course. Yeah. I mean, there, there are all kinds of dimensions to this that go well beyond what you and I want to talk about right now, but absolutely. Um, our, uh, one of the beautiful things of capitalism and democracy, which is these two are always intimately connected, which the United States has been such a beacon of for so long is that 
um, there is this relentless pursuit for profit. And that is, I do not say that as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Unlike most academics, I am vehemently opposed to communism. Um, but it's a, there is a, a, a counter to that or, or an aspect to this, which can be a little more sinister, which is you don't really, you might not care as much what is happening to uh, when this product is consumed, as long as it is, you know, helping the investors, you know, ah. so, so to speak. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely something where our innovation in the United States has been so remarkable uh, in so many wonderful ways, but our innovation to make food more processed and more palatable is not one of the things we should be proud of. Oh, so well said. So well said. So, okay. So explain to the people who are listeners who maybe didn't hear the first episode when I brought you on last year, mm-hmm. and I want to encourage everybody to go back and listen to that. What is insulin resistance? How would we explain that? And then the second part I want to ask of that question, why is it getting so much press? Why do so many people are so many people starting to care about it? Yeah. Yeah. Insulin resistance. Uh, the best analogy I can think of is thinking of insulin resistance as a coin that I'm holding a coin and I'm calling this coin insulin resistance, but it has two sides. The first side is in fact, cells becoming resistant to insulin's effects. Not all cells of the body though. Insulin resistance in the body is happening when some of the body's cells aren't responding as well to insulin. So that's like specific to the cell, any given cell. However, we flip that coin over, it's part of the same coin. And then we have the phenomenon of hyperinsulinemia or chronically elevated insulin. Unfortunately, especially in the low carb realm, people don't realize that these always come together. To make this point perfectly clear, to put as fine a point on this as possible, there is no such thing as insulin resistance in the human body without hyperinsulinemia. There must be elevated insulin. I'm going to say this in reverse now for there to be insulin resistance. You cannot pull the two apart. They are on their own distinct phenomenon. One, a cell not responding as well to insulin and two, insulin levels being chronically elevated in the blood. But in the case of the whole body, they are absolutely inseparable. Now, I mentioned that in the low-carb community, we get this so wrong. And that's because people have started to invoke this idea of physiological insulin resistance as if, and they will say a low carbohydrate diet can create physiological insulin resistance as if they're being clever. Well, they're neither being clever nor informed. It's just utterly incorrect. There is in fact, such a thing as physiological insulin resistance. It happens in pregnancy and puberty. And that is when the body has become insulin resistant for a good reason which is in these instances to facilitate rapid growth. In the case of pathological insulin resistance, which is what you and I talked about on the first episode and everyone go watch it, that's the kind that we're all afraid of because that's the kind that's contributing to breast and prostate cancers and Alzheimer's disease and heart disease, infertility, uh, and all these other terrible things that none of us want. But even still, as different as pathological insulin resistance is in causing disease and physiological insulin resistance is in helping the body be healthy and strong, they are both the same thing in that it is both altered insulin signaling at certain cells and to higher insulin levels. Now, to help wrap up my rant as quickly as possible, in the low-carb realm, 
people will say physiological insulin resistance, thinking they're being eloquent and clever, when again, they're being neither, um, they're just wrong. But what does happen, because insulin levels drop precipitously on a low-carb diet, and thus, how can there be insulin resistance? There is not. And indeed, if you inject that person with insulin, they are so insulin sensitive that they will die from hypoglycemia and the lack of ketones. So it, it's, it's, it boggles the mind to say this. However, the truth of the situation and where the uninformed think it's physiological insulin resistance is that if you take one person who's eating a standard American diet and have him drink 50 grams of glucose, his glucose levels will come up, and, and assuming he's a healthy insulin-sensitive person, which is a bit of an assumption, his glucose levels will come up and down in two hours. A nice, neat curve. However, take another lean, healthy person who's following a low-carbohydrate diet, and his glucose levels may, will come up, and they'll stay up a little longer and take a little longer to come back down, which does, in fact, look like a glucose pattern you would expect in someone who is insulin-resistant, but that's not what's happening here. The unique metabolic state in someone who's been following a low-carb diet is that they are exquisitely insulin-sensitive. They've just become somewhat glucose intolerant temporarily, thankfully, but that has everything to do with the production of insulin. The beta cell, so when someone, uh, when, when someone goes and eats a bagel, they will have what's called a, a biphasic insulin release. There is this immediate release of insulin, and then it starts to curve, and then it's met with a bigger second wave. So there are these two phases of insulin secretion. The first phase is the release of all of the insulin that the beta cells have already made and they have on hand, that they've made and it's packaged up and ready to go the moment there's an increase in glucose. That's the first phase. And the beta cells will run through that very quickly. But at the same time, it's running out of its already made stored insulin. It's already ramped up all of the metabolic machinery in the factory to make a whole new shipment of insulin. And that's the second phase. What happens with either fasting or a low-carb diet, there's so little glucose coming in that there's so rarely any big glucose spike mm. that the beta cells are looking at all of this preformed insulin that's kind of clogging up, the, it's cluttering up the cell, and it thinks, well, I don't need all this stuff anymore. I don't need preformed insulin because we consume so little glucose that I can just handle any glucose load by making the insulin from scratch and just shipping it right out the moment it's produced. And thus, the beta cell, who is determined to be efficient with its use of space, much, much to my delight, I'm the same way, it looks at all the cluttered insulin and says, I don't need it anymore. I'm going to get rid of it. And it simply breaks it down into its basic little protein amino acids and just recycles it into something else. But that's the problem, if you will, where someone who's been adhering to a low-carb diet they eat a bunch of glucose and it takes them longer to clear the glucose, not because they're insulin resistant, but because they have temporarily gotten rid of that first phase of insulin. In that state, they only have the second phase. And so it just takes a little longer for the insulin to get up to where it needs to get and to clear the glucose. But have that same low carb adapted person eat that exact same carbohydrate heavy snack or meal six hours later, and the first phase is back and they'll clear the glucose like gangbusters. Oh, how is that for a that, ridiculously over-explained definition of no, insulin resistance? <laughs> no, I have so many thoughts on that. I have never heard. That was way too much though. <laughs> no, I was like, I, my brain was like following you every step of the way and going, what? Good, okay. good. So, so I have two questions that I want to say out of what you just said. 
One, I can't let the comment go by that we become more insulin resistant at puberty and pregnancy. Yep. Why is that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the two, the two P's of physiological insulin resistance, as I like to describe them. And as I teach them to my graduate students. So insulin is anabolic. It wants to promote growth. And, and, and Mm. so that's, so you look at these two stages of what could only be described of just hyperactive, explosive growth. You know, a little kid is growing, 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 they hit puberty and boom, and then they plateau. Well, you take the average mature woman, like, you know, an, an adult woman, well, her growth is done, but then get, she gets pregnant. And all of a sudden the tissue demands to grow the uterus, to grow a placenta, to grow breast tissue, and even to grow more fat to make sure that there is an, uh, kind of a metabolic insurance plan um, to carry the pregnancy full term and then to breastfeed the baby afterwards, which of course would have been done in nature or, you know, historically always. So having more body fat is this kind of metabolic insurance in the event that food becomes a little scarce. Well, let's just pack on whatever we can right now so that we can feed, grow the baby and feed the baby all the way until the baby's independent. Um, so, so here you, here you have an adult female who's totally done growing. And now all of a sudden you have this explosive growth because she has to get ready for this baby and insulin comes up and helps. So it's, so in both instances, despite their differences, what they have in common is that it is, it is the two periods of the most explosive growth a human experiences. Um, so insulin by becoming insulin resistant in some cells of the body and by having higher insulin you can basically direct. So the higher insulin is telling the body to make more stuff and store it. And some of the body cells are super sensitive to that insulin. And thus they can experience that explosive anabolic metabolic processes. You know, this is the thing about the human body that continues to put me in awe is that it's always doing the right thing at the right time. And yet Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. symptoms that we get, we villainize. I mean, you talk to any any young female in puberty and you're like, Hey, you're more insulin resistant. Like nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. Well, what's interesting too, just because we're talking about ladies um, is to note the effect of, of prototypical female sex hormones like progesterone and estrogen on metabolism, where women will commonly think that estrogen is fattening, but that's just absolutely false. Estradiol, the main estrogen is very lipolytic. It's, it's very much preventing the female body from storing too much fat. All estrogens are doing is telling her body where to store fat, mm. fat not how much to store, mm. which is why if I had a man and a woman come into my lab and we did a fat biopsy from the fat by their belly button and put it into a little dish, gram for gram, the fat from the, the woman is breaking down and burning more fat. I mean, burning is not the right word in this case, but it's breaking down. It's undergoing more lipolysis than the fat from the man is. Hmm. So this is a very, which is why women tend to have naturally higher levels of free fatty acids in her blood than a man does, because she's constantly burning or mobilizing more fat than the man is. And estradiol helps that happen. But in stark contrast, progesterone is a fat that is, well, that is the fat of pregnancy. It's progestation. And it works with insulin to make sure the body is storing more fat. And interestingly, progesterone is so eager to store fat that it will stimulate greater hunger, which is why in a normal Mm. uh, menstrual cycle, when progesterone is high, 
a woman will very, very commonly, and this is not my experience, this is published research, um, she will, hunger will go up. Hunger will almost exactly match progesterone levels. So progesterone levels climb and then come down throughout the month, normal, normal satiety, hunger signals, and then boy, hunger is bigger, 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 and then it subsides again. It just goes with progesterone completely. Yeah. And I would, I speak for every woman out there. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good. And, well, and, I, and Mindy, just so everyone knows, I've, I sometimes get a lot of heat. Like I've seen people make comments like, oh, great. Another white straight man talking about women's, you know, whatever. I'm not pretending I know what it's like. Just so everybody knows, yeah, right? No, you know that, but just so I everybody totally knows, know that. I'm not pretending. Yeah. Um, but just based on published research, I can speak on this with some authority. The other thing I really feel like is that just that comment alone, and I, it's actually something that I say a lot to my community, which is when you're hungry the week before your period, stop villainizing yourself. Stop. You're not undisciplined. It's because pre- progesterone is going to require more glucose. Yep. And so you, it's natural. Now let's just pick the right food for you to eat. It doesn't mean you sit yeah, on well the couch. Said. Right? You don't sit on the couch well and eat pizza. Yeah. But yep. you do have to give yourself grace because your human body wants more glucose. And I think that's Super. so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. My second question, because we're going to get this a lot, is in the first, in that the beautiful opening uh, comments you had. Yeah. If you go on a three day water fast, if you go on a 48 hour water fast, something a little bit longer, and your pancreas is getting rid of the insulin it doesn't need. If when you bring food back in, will there be a temporary appearance like glucose is high because of what you said where that oh, insulin totally. system? Yeah. Okay. And how yeah, but, long but does all it the, last? All the more reason, all the more reason to be careful with how you break your fast, which is why I'm always saying how you end a fast is much more important than how long you fast. So don't eat something that demands a dramatic insulin mm. response for, for two reasons. One, for the reason we just described which is you're not going to clear the glucose very well, you know, kind of warm up the pancreas again, if you're going to get into carb heavy foods, start easy. But then second, this is very uncommon and virtually, uh, I would say probably impossible, certainly unheard of on a, in the order of like a two to even three day fast. But there is a phenomenon known as refeeding syndrome. Do you already, have you already talked about this? No, no, but so we, talk, we talk about breaking fasts all the time and how important it is. So please. Well, then this, then this yeah. is worth taking a moment to explain, but it, it, it sort of follows along with that sentiment just from a moment ago, which is, you know, you don't, don't expect your pancreas to work too hard and, and, and expect it to produce insulin that you haven't been asking it to produce for the last mm-hmm. 24 to 48 hours or 72 hours, because it, all it takes is about 16 hours of fasting for the beta cells to start scrapping their stored insulin. So this is a pretty quick phenomenon. But um, there, uh, when, when insulin levels start to drop, which they do during a fast, um, the body uh, starts to uh, more rapidly, I want to make sure I explain this correctly, the body will start letting um, uh, minerals go. It'll start letting electrolytes leave with the water from the blood. And, and this is why the person's blood pressure will tend to go down um, now, of course, if you're taking salt and water, this will help mitigate this phenomenon. But even still, insulin comes down, and as it is, the body is more rapidly dumping electrolytes in the urine. It's just a natural phenomenon. However, when you spike your insulin really dramatically, you start not only 
are the kidneys still dumping some of the minerals? They don't get the message immediately. It takes them a few hours to start conserving minerals again. But what happens when insulin spikes is within seconds of insulin hitting the blood, it now starts pushing particularly uh, potassium into cells. So as insulin's coming to cells, part of what it's pulling into the cell is, is potassium. And so the person can actually run the risk of developing hypokalemia or mm. low blood potassium. And that is, in fact, a very lethal, I mean, it can kill you situation. Uh, now, again, this is not common on the order of even two to three day fasts. It's usually, this was studied in very long, like mm. week, two week type fasts um, under, you know, strict kind of academic clinical um, supervision. But even still, it's nevertheless a reminder for us to not end a fast with an insulin spiking meal or snack, because not only is that going to be a challenge on the pancreas in that moment and take it, make it harder for us to clear the glucose. And so we'll be hyperglycemic for longer, but two, we just start flirting with this potentially lethal imbalance in electrolytes. Yeah. Um, it's so well said. So what would be the ideal meal to break a fast with? Yeah. Yeah. So it, protein and fat um, yeah. at the risk of oversimplifying it, just because there is one, I mean, for myriad reasons, uh, let's see how many I can think of off the top of my head. One, proteins and fats are what's essential. Mm -hmm. So why not end your fast with what you literally have to be eating? Essential amino acids and essential fatty acids. Um, and uh, two, you will help mitigate the insulin burden because proteins and fats um, have little to no effect on insulin, respectively. And so it just helps, you know, kind of wake the pancreas back up and, and removing it because the pancreas has been a little quiescent or still during the, well, the, the, the beta cells have been mm -hmm. during the fast because it's the fasted state right. and insulin is not the hormone of the fasted state. It's the hormone of the fed state. So you eat something and kind of warm the beta cells up as you start getting more and more to higher carbohydrate meals. What would you say the hormone of the fasted state is? Ah, that's a very, very good question. So there are a lot of ways I could answer this. But I will highlight one that I think hasn't classically been discussed enough, but I've, over the past few years, tried to shine a light on it, and that's glucagon. I think you and I have talked about glucagon yeah. before, but glucagon um, glucagon is a hormone of the fasted state, and, and I like to talk about it because, in a way, it's such a wonderful opposite to insulin mm -hmm. that essentially whatever insulin wants to do, glucagon wants to oppose it. In, in, a, in a beautiful yin and yang, you know, there has to be a counter here each keeping the other in check. It's a wonderful check and balance. But um, there are multiple other hormones that also would reflect a fasted state. So as much as I'm mentioning glucagon, I could just as much justifiably have mentioned epinephrine or cortisol or growth hormone. Mm. All of those climb during the fasted state because what they all have in common, all four of the hormones I've just mentioned, glucagon, epinephrine, cortisol, growth hormone, they are all totally different from totally different cells, move totally differently in the body and affect different cells differently throughout the body. What they all have in common is that they all increase glucose um, release from the liver. That mm -hmm. every one of these through, to through totally different mechanisms come to the liver and tell the liver either to break down its glycogen to release its glucose and or stimulate the liver to undergo gluconeogenesis to basically pull in lactate, which is mostly what it does this with and turn it into glucose and release it back into the blood. That's an important thing for us to appreciate because as much as 
I just said a moment ago that fats and proteins are what's essential, thus implying that dietary carbohydrates are not and they aren't essential. Too many people hear that statement and either willfully or ignorantly misunderstand it to imply that blood glucose isn't necessary. That mm. is not true. In fact, blood glucose is so essential that the liver has all of these wonderful signals that force it to make blood glucose, which is proof positive in the fact that we start fasting and all our glucose levels do is go to normal. They just mm. hover around 70 to 80 milligrams per deciliter because the liver is so good at making sure it stays there. And that itself is evidence of the fact that the body is vigorously defending that glucose range. Whether the glucose is pushing up or getting pushed down, it wants to bring it back into that range. And there are some cells of the body that absolutely have to have glucose. And I'm not going to say the brain because we don't really know that. We know that mm -hmm. the red blood cells, red blood cells must have glucose. There is literally no other option because any other nutrient option can only be burned in the mitochondria. Well, red blood cells don't have mitochondria, so they literally can use nothing else. Unlike the brain, which can shift over to using ketones and even lactate as a fuel because it is so enriched with mitochondria. Um, but red blood cells, they absolutely have to have glucose. And that's one of at least one reason why blood glucose is so critical. And even again, stepping further back, why it's such a blessing that the liver has such a, a, a profound ability to provide all the glucose the body needs. So it, does that explain why, and I, I, we get this question so often from our community, when people are fasting, they can see their blood sugar go up and their ketones go up. How, yeah. how is that possible? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, in fact, let's just invoke glucagon because glucagon plays a part in both of those. So too does epinephrine, but I like glucagon more. So glucagon is, has two, two seemingly um, counter effects. Well, it's actually literally the effects you just mentioned. One is that glucagon will stimulate glycogenolysis at the liver, thereby breaking down stored glucose and increase, releasing it into the blood, increasing glucose. Although it shouldn't ever go too high because then insulin starts to work against it to push it mm -hmm. back down. So if someone sees an increase in glucose during a fast, that's a little uncommon, a little uncommon, but it might suggest that they're kind of, I hate that I may give birth to a, a sentiment that lives longer than I ever intend to, but maybe they're a little glucagon dominant, you know, so to speak. Yeah, that could become Where, a word. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. But but essentially, but even then, the, remember that there's a lot of hormones that want to do this. But I'm only invoking glucagon because it's simply relevant to both glucose and ketones. But remember, on the glucose-raising side, there's glucagon, growth hormone, cortisol, epinephrine. So any one of those could be providing too, a little too much of an upward pressure on the glucose. But as that's happening, insulin will wake up from its fasted, rested state and start pushing it back down. It. Um, but even still, glucagon is going to want to increase glucose by, by inducing glycogenolysis at the liver. It also activates ketogenesis at the liver because when insulin is low um, and then glucagon amplifies this, the liver is burning so much fat that it actually ends up burning more fat than it needs to meet its, uh, than it needs to meet its own energy needs. And so here's the amount of energy that the liver cells need. And because insulin is low, fat is basically providing all of that energy. But because insulin is low, it can't stop burning fat. And so now it's kind of surpassed 
what its actual energy needs are. And that extra, if you will, is what gets kind of shunted into ketogenesis and starts turning into ketones. So are you, are you in ketosis if your blood sugar is going up and your ketones are going up? Well, normally you wouldn't. Um, but if, if glucagon were too high relative to insulin, like what happens in type 1 diabetes, that's exactly what happens in type 1 diabetes. Mm. Insulin is very, very low and glucagon is too high because it doesn't have insulin to inhibit it. Mm-hmm. And then you, I, then you can have this state where you have both high glucose and high ketones. Okay. And, and as long as they're not too high, it's not a dangerous place. It's the liver right. the, and, and it can be looked at as positive because the liver is breaking down the stored sugar, uh, mm-hmm. which ultimately allows the liver to function better. Yeah. Yeah. But Mindy, there is something maybe I should kind of end that answer with, yeah. which is if someone notices during a fast that they are getting really high glucose and really high ketones, they might in fact want to go get their insulin checked. Yeah. That might be a warning that there is in fact a, a defect in insulin production or, or, you know, even beta cell number, like, you know, hinting at uh, some degree of type one diabetes, because in the average healthy person within, with no hint of beta cell problem, um, uh, glucose shouldn't be climbing. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little, certainly during exercise, it should just be ketones are coming up. If they're both going up and they kind of keep going, go get your insulin checked. And is there somebody asked on our, on the Resetter podcast, YouTube channel, uh, is there a way to measure insulin, a home test, or is it only a, no, why not? It seems like we should be able to create that. Uh, Oh, 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 you, you can't even, you can't even imagine how, how competitive and determined multiple labs are around the world. Uh, Truly, Mm -hmm. truly. To, to not, uh, to, I mean, forget about the idea of a continuous insulin monitor. I mean, we're, we're a decade away from that at least, but just to kind of miniaturize the ability to take a few drops of blood on like a little insulin mm. meter, like we would have yep. ketones or glucose. Oh no, no, we are, I'd say we're still, that's probably five or six years away. There are so many technical hurdles with trying to measure a hormone. You can't do that with mm. any hormone. Mm. I know that because what I've been saying is they need to do it for women where they put like a continuous glucose monitor on them. If we had something that showed where our hormones were at, oh my gosh, <laughs> that yeah. somebody needs to come up with that. That would be amazing. Yeah. So, and then it would send the alerts to the husband's phone. That's right. It would <laughs> everybody around you. You could be yeah. like, hey. Hey, look, progesterone's coming in big today. So <laughs> I'm snacky. I'm yeah, going morning. to the buffet. So <laughs> have dinner ready. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Oh okay. my gosh. Here's the here's you the, you said it. I'm not being a misogynist. You said it. I, I and I'm and I'm hoping if I keep saying it, there's gonna be some researcher out there yeah. that's gonna yeah. know and they're gonna be like, yes, let's go make that. So every woman is demanding it. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us. 
is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. Okay, have you heard of the term fat toxicity? Never, but I can't wait to hear what it is. Okay, I can't wait to tell you, and this is what I learned. It is a, um, a doctor, is, I don't know his first name, but his name is Dr. Gregory. And it, this question was actually asked on our YouTube channel. And I went and watched his theory on it. Here's his theory, is that insulin resistance starts in the muscles, that there is a resistance factor. It doesn't start in the liver. It doesn't start in the pancreas. It starts in the muscles. The muscles become insulin resistant, and then it progresses to the liver, and then it progresses to the pancreas, and then you have type 2 diabetes. Uh, no, no, he's, he's wrong. Um, <laughs> so I don't know him. I, so I, maybe I, I, I want to be polite in all sincerity. That's just not true. Um, but, but, what is this? But, but even still, before I break that down and point out the flaws in that, where does where does the fat come into that? Does he say that the muscle becomes insulin resistant because it gets too loaded with fat? That's exactly okay. Right. So what he's doing there, whether he knows it or not, is invoking a principle of what we call in the realm of like I've I've published papers on this, so I can't speak with some authority. What we call lipotoxicity, which is he's just kind of made it a little more of a palatable term because someone might not know what lipo means. But that lipotoxicity was this idea born a couple decades ago. And again, my, my postdoc work focused explicitly on this. It was, and still is, one of the more world-famous labs studying lipotoxicity. But the idea is that the muscle cell or any cell, I'm not even going to invoke muscle because I'm going to come back to that and pull that idea apart in a second. The idea is a cell accumulates fat and becomes insulin resistant because of it. Um, there is some truth to that idea, but I don't know if most people appreciate it. So the most common form of storing fat is in the form of triglycerides. And triglycerides will bubble together and, and, and create what's called a lipid droplet. And you can detect this, of course, very readily in a fat cell. If you look at a fat cell under a microscope, like we could, we could walk across the hallway right now to my lab and we're growing fat cells in a Petri dish. We could look at the fat cells and you basically, they look like they're a big bubble because mm -hmm. all you see is this huge lipid droplet, which consists entirely of triglycerides. And within each cell, it just, you zoom into the cell, magnify it as much as you can. It just looks like a big bubble in the mm -hmm. cell. It's this big lipid droplet of triglycerides. Triglycerides can be stored in the liver very, very readily. They can also be stored in the muscle. 
But triglycerides do not cause insulin resistance. They don't contribute to it whatsoever. They're totally inert. However, there is a type of fat called ceramides. And anyone who wants to go to Google, type in Dickman ceramides, you can find the numerous papers I've published on this topic. Ceramides are a type of fat. But the problem with saying that is there are hundreds of thousands of different types of fats, mm. um, really. So there are like uh, ceramides are kind of the, the mother molecule in a family of fats called the sphingolipids, named after the enigmatic sphinx, because for so long we didn't know what they did at all. Um, but we know that ceramides will make a cell insulin resistant. But even still, we'd have to say, well, how do the ceramides get there? What induces their accumulation? Well, things like cortisol, things like inflammation, things like chronically elevated insulin will induce the accumulation of ceramides in a cell, and then the cell has become insulin resistant. Now, however, to try to point the finger at one particular tissue is very problematic mm. because there are a lot of assumptions that have to go into that. So his assumption that it starts in the muscle, he, he can't say that. Um, there are, but there are advocates in my realm as actual practicing biomedical scientists who study insulin resistance. There are pools. There are advocates of this muscle first theory. There are advocates of the liver first theory. Mm. Then there are advocates, you know, with who say that it's a fat first theory. Um, but regardless, each theory has evidence to support it. My evidence is just better than the other guys, but, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, it really does depend on the stimulus because if I took a random person and uh, and infused them with cortisol um, slowly, slowly, and giving them a chronic kind of boost in cortisol levels, I would detect insulin resistance concurrently in fat cells, in muscle cells, in liver cells, in neurons. None would have preceded the other. They all would have gone at the same time. Similarly, if we took the average individual and started infusing a base level of pro-inflammatory cytokines, of course, you have to be very careful doing this, but even still, you would start detecting concurrent insulin resistance throughout the body. There would be no way to say this tissue went first. No, because the same stimulus is happening at all the cells and they're all becoming insulin resistant. My view is very much in the average individual who is becoming insulin resistant through their diet is that it's happening due to chronically elevated insulin. And the elevations in insulin are promoting fat cell hypertrophy. And when a fat cell undergoes hypertrophy, two terrible things happen. One, the fat cell becomes insulin resistant in an effort to control its own growth. And so it starts leaking free fatty acids. And second, it becomes pro-inflammatory to try to increase blood flow because as every individual fat cell is undergoing hypertrophy, they're getting pushed further and further away from blood vessels. Mm. And thus they become hypoxic. And to try to correct that hypoxia, they start secreting a whole catalog of pro-inflammatory proteins, some of which will help induce more blood vessel growth, many of which will simply start promoting insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body. So to try to point the finger at one particular tissue, um, you're doomed to be laughed at because everyone else will have evidence. Like I'm laughing at him a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're doomed. But, yeah. but I very much think the fat cell is the first to become insulin resistant. And then once the, and this is reflected, remember insulin resistance is when insulin is elevated, but glucose is normal. Mm -hmm. And then once the insulin resistance has moved to the liver, 
the muscle and the alpha cells of the pancreas, which start producing too much glucagon. Now you can no longer control glucose and the glucose starts to climb. And now you have transitioned from insulin resistance, which is prediabetes into full on type two diabetes, which is both elevated insulin and elevated glucose. Because in type two diabetes, insulin does not become deficient. It does not go to zero. If this is true type two, insulin has gone like this. They were insulin sensitive and insulin was really low. Then it starts to climb up really high and then it can drop a bit, but it never drops to the level that it used to be. It's still multiples higher than it ever was before. It just came down from where it used to be at its peak. If it actually goes down to basically zero, they now have actually just coincidentally developed type one diabetes later in life, which can happen, which had nothing to do with having had type two diabetes. They are two totally separate diseases. So on the topic of muscles, I I do want to come at this from a different angle because one of the trends that we're seeing right now is uh, a lot of people increasing protein um, and they're doing it to increase muscle. And then when we look at the effectiveness of muscle on insulin sensitivity, Mm. the understanding is that there's more muscle you have, the more insulin receptors you have. Is that, is that a good trail of thought? And should we, Oh, Oh, totally. Yeah. Should we be highlighting protein? Is that the hero of the insulin day? Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful question. So there's a lot of dimensions to this. One is that no question, having more muscle makes you inherently more insulin sensitive just because muscle is the main, it is the lion's share eater of glucose. So when we've gone and eaten that bagel, glucose has come up as it comes down 80% of where that is going is to the muscle. And so if you just have more and more muscle, well, then that just means you're dropping that glucose that much faster because insulin comes, starts knocking on any doors it can. And there's so much muscle. Well, the insulin's like going through a crowded neighborhood. It's like an apartment building, knock, 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 open up. Here's the glucose, glucose, glucose. And so the glucose drops. The less muscle you have, the longer it's going to take for you to clear the glucose because insulin just doesn't have as many places to tuck the glucose away and out of the blood. Now, Then to move into the discussion of protein, I think the conversation has gone too far. Mm, Interesting. As much as I am a long advocate of protein, indeed, I I was defending protein before many were in the low-carb keto space because I saw the trend to just be eating fat, 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 fat. And I thought that's not natural for everyone to just be drinking MCT oil all the time. In nature, protein and fat come together. We pull them apart sometimes, and I'm not saying that's not warranted. Like in any animal fat, like butter or ghee or whatever, we've pulled it from the protein that was meant to come with it. But then the fat from the fatty fruits, like coconuts, olives, avocados, of course, there was no protein there in the first place, and that's just fat. Um, But protein is not meant to be consumed without fat. In nature, there is zero instance of protein existing without fat. It doesn't happen. And so in our hubris, we think we know so much, we've pulled the two apart in our obsession and love of protein. Well, I love protein too, and I get it. And I think we ought to prioritize it, but it should come with the fat that naturally wanted to come with it. When protein and fat are consumed together, we digest the protein better, literally by, by using bile acids, it actually facilitates protein digestion. And second, it's more anabolic. You can grow muscles bigger and faster by taking fat and protein compared to just protein alone. 
Interesting. So do you, would you say that one gram of protein for every body, uh, pound of body weight is an overestimation of what to know? No, that's probably, that's probably okay. Because of, I can't, unfortunately, as much as I uh, align myself with Ameri- the U.S. now. I still think metrically un- uh, because of my Canadian roots. Oh so, yeah, well, the, we're a worldwide so, audience. I, I should have tra- yeah, I yeah, good. So, so usually around, yeah, uh, it won't quite be that high, but about one and a half grams per kilogram of ideal body weight, which is going to, which is almost going to be one gram per pound. That's kind of getting close. And in fact, I would even be fine with that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm okay with that number. I, I really am. Okay. Um, I would just emphasize, let the fat come with it. Don't yes. like my fear in us prioritizing protein, which we are justified in doing proteins amazing, but I just don't like the idea of people just eating a spoon of, of whey, you know, mm. f- or something. Um, I, there, there should be fat that is coming with that protein. You will digest it better and it will be more anabolic than otherwise. Interesting. Okay. One of the other questions that was really common on our YouTube channel was about kids. How do, how are we dealing with the, the obesity issue that we've got yeah. growing in kids? And one of the questions came from a parent of like, and I can say, I mean, my kids are grown now, but the peer pressure when they're in middle school, high school, they go to a, everywhere they go is a carbohydrate, sugar saturated yeah. experience. How do you, how do we navigate this one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I love this because I, as much as I am a scientist, I am a husband and father mm-hmm. light years above anything else by way of priority. So I think about this a lot and, and just how easy it is. You know, we want our kids to, to enjoy life and we want them to be able to have treats that, that is totally natural. And moreover, we just get freaking exhausted from all their whining when they want, you know, a bag of goldfish yeah. crackers or whatever the hell yeah. they're asking for. But for me, I, in fact, it's funny, we're talking about protein because that's actually how I frame this. I don't, I'm very much uh, mindful of the fact that I have, I have two little daughters um, and I never want them to think too much about food. Mm-hmm. You know, I never want them to, to be so obsessive just because of the tendency to develop an eating disorder. And so I never want to, I don't say, no, we can't eat. We don't eat that in our home. We never eat that kind of stuff. No, it's, have you had some protein? Mm. That's what I always ask. Mm. Have you, all right, you want, you want a little bowl of goldfish crackers because goldfish is like meth to kids, right? (laughs) Um, Like that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in a while. Sure. You can have some goldfish, but have you had some protein? Go eat some protein. Here's, we got some cheese sticks. We got some beef sticks. We got some yogurt and each of my kids, some cottage cheese, whatever it is, eat some protein first. And of course my kids, none of them like the same thing, right? Because that would be too easy. So my one daughter (laughs) will eat some cheese sticks. My other daughter will eat beef sticks and my son will eat cottage cheese. And each of them thinks any of the others are just utterly disgusting. Um, So you never, never get the wrong thing to the wrong kid. Yeah. Right. Yep. But just go eat some protein. Okay, you've had all right now. Yeah, go ahead. Have some have some goldfish. I don't care. Um, I, I do care, but I just mostly care that they learn what real nutrition is. And I'll make sure that I kind of mention that. I'll say, like, especially to my son, but even my daughters, hey, you're doing some acrobatics or you got lacrosse. You really need some muscle. Don't waste some your stomach on the junk. Get that protein in there first so you can really get your muscles and bones strong. And then if you need some extra energy, okay, go ahead. So that's kind of how I frame it. Mm. Um, and I am in no way this, this, you know, 
paradigm paragon of, of good parenting. Um, but that's how I've tried to frame the conversation and it seems to work Great. to be, to be perfectly honest. It does seem to work for the most part, which again, don't say, no, you can't have that. That's just junk. It's like, all right. Yeah. Well, that's a treat. Can you have some protein first? Just so your body really knows that it needs to grow some muscle and some bone and that, that, that works. Yeah. And I would, I would say, you know, my kids are grown now, but we did a lot of those kind of conversations as well as like educating them, but also being very fluid with it because you do not want to have them create an eating disorder. I absolutely don't want to be too rigid. No, no. What would you say if somebody goes into the doctor's office, they're given a diagnosis of pre pre pre-diabetes or type two diabetes, and they're told it's genetic. Mm, What would you mm, say to that? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it, it very well could be all the more reason to fight that much harder. Mm. That would be the second part of this because there's no question genetics matter when it comes to insulin resistance and type two diabetes. No question. It's, it's very much a fact that if someone has a parent who has type two diabetes or, or insulin resistance, they will absolutely have a higher risk. No question. Um, that doesn't mean you give up. Mm-hmm. Um, all that means is you have to work a little harder unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and that means, uh, that means everyone ought to be very compassionate in this regard. Not only never judging the other person, because we cannot know what their genes and circumstances are, regardless of that, just always trying to be a help rather than a hindrance, but, but all the more, but yes, a person who has been told it's genetics, it probably is, but that doesn't mean it's hopeless. Right. N- not at all. So would you buy the theory if you live the same lifestyle as your parents and did, then yes, you're more predetermined. But if you change that lifestyle. Yeah. I love that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Last question, because I want to respect your time. And this one has nothing to do with insulin, although I could talk insulin with with you all day. Uh, We are doing a theme of gratitude this year on my podcast. Do you have a daily gratitude practice? And if so, what it is, what is it? And what are you the most grateful for this year in 2022? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do. Um, and this is easy for me because I'm a very religious person. And so I very much acknowledge in, in my faith, a higher power. So yeah, I, I, I pray, I have personal prayer every day, awesome. which is always gratitude and a family prayer, which mm. honest, honestly, that has been one of the, over the life of our little family now, um, the most touching connecting moments, hmm. just being together, literally kneeling together and, and, and praying as a family, the kids, it turns into a spontaneous little wrestling match. It's it, then it turns into a game of uno or whatever, but a prayer is in our home. It always starts with what we're thankful for. And then at various times in my life, I've kept a journal, hmm. which is, which has in a way been kind of a gratitude journal hmm. as well. Just acknowledging, um, these, these blessings, uh, as I would call them, or just fortunate events or whatever we want to call them. So yes, I, I very much have a practice of gratitude and it's something I believe in for the health and well-being of, of every soul on the planet, the mm-hmm. need to acknowledge the good things in our lives and express gratitude for them to, to the universe or a higher power when relevant. And then even more importantly, or just as importantly to individuals in our lives. Yeah, And then the second part of your question, what I'm the most grateful for this year, there's, of course, a lot 
um, that I would say about my family, but just for the sake of being unique, I won't say my wife and children. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would, I'll say this. I'm grateful for my job. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm very, very sympathetic um, to people who don't have the stability that a tenured professor does. Mm-hmm. I am very, very grateful to have the kind of career I do um, for many reasons. But in this case, as things are getting so unstable and have been for a while and, are, and, and could very well get worse, to be a tenured professor is, is a very, is a very uh, big thing for me to be grateful for at yeah. the moment. That's a very practical point of gratitude, but it's very real. Yeah. And I, it, it's a beautiful gratitude. And what I'm going to do is dovetail on that because this is how we started off this conversation, which is, and does the world need your teachings now more than ever as the world is waking up to the fact that we're so many people are insulin resistant. So uh, I, I'm going to yeah, encourage yeah. everybody who follows me to go follow you because you do an a, amazing job of explaining insulin resistance and inspiring us. So Ben, I'm just, I appreciate it. Yeah. Super grateful for you and go, go grab some dinner with your family. And I'm sure we will talk again. I'd love it. Thanks so much, Mindy. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.